All right, well, let's grab our Bibles and go to Isaiah chapter 9, or open your Bible, your new Foothill Church app, and there's a sermon section, and you can go to sermon guides, and then that will give you links to the scriptures we're going to look at today. And uh, we're going we're gonna to focus in on one section, but I, I want to kind of give you some context. But, but first, um, how many of you have started listening to Christmas music? Uh, yeah, yeah, good, good, good. Now, you all know there's only like 17 songs, right? Um, and we just play them in different formats, right? There's the jazz version, the hip-hop version, and the pop version, and the rock version, and all this sort of stuff. And, and they range all over. What always amazes me, though, is even though there's 17, there's always these ones that are trying to get put into the Christmas canon, the Christmas, you know, uh, repertoire, that I think are just strange choices. Like... Um, uh, the one that, that, that Elf made popular, Baby, It's Cold Outside. Now, this has become this. Isn't that a nice little song about a guy who wants to sleep with his girlfriend? That's really sweet. That's precious. And, or there's, there's, the, uh, there, there's the one Gracie and I were talking about the other day. Um, I've got my love to keep me warm. Okay, so it's nothing, nothing to do with Christmas. It's just it's cold, and I want to be warm, and I've got love, and so that's good. And, and, uh, and yet somehow that's become a Christmas song. So Christmas songs range from kind of the majestic, like, like uh, Handel's Messiah, your real highbrow, or Nutcracker Christmas, really classical and classy, you know, all the way down to the utterly inane, like Frosty the Snowman, right, or Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, just sort of this wild range. So... Within this range, I think we can all agree that if there's one song that would get our hearts soaring to the heights that Christmas wants, if there's one, one song that would put us in the place that I feel like we should be right here at Christmas, I, I think there's one song that would do that. And of course, I'm talking about Santa Baby. Um, uh, that just does it, right? I mean, Santa Baby. And the great thing about Santa Baby is how many people have covered that song, right? You can hear Ariana Grande. You can hear Madonna. You can hear Taylor Swift. It's mostly girls, but if you're a dude, at least Michael Buble redid it so that you can sing along and go, that applies to me, right? But what is the song? The whole song is basically about this wild Christmas list, right? I mean, all these things this person wants. I want a sable fur. I want a yacht, I want, I love this one, a platinum mine. I want a light blue convertible. I mean, all this, these magnificent, and then they say, by the way, while you're at it, a ring. That'd be great. Give me a ring. Get engaged to me, whatever. I just want this big, fat diamond ring for myself, right? This is, this is a Christmas list that, that the sky is the limit. I mean, there is, there is no cap on what you can ask for in Santa Baby. You can, you can ask for the moon, right? You can, this is an amazing, amazing Christmas list. Now, what if the sky was the limit for you? What would you ask for? Like what meant I could ask for anything. I could have my own Santa baby, right? You, what would go in your song? What, what would you say, this is what I want more than anything? So I've been in pastoral ministry now for about uh, almost 15 years. And um, I, I've, done, I've done a fair amount of counseling. Somebody will call the church office. Somebody will say, Pastor Chris, can I come see you? And they'll come into my office. And they'll sit down. And they'll begin to share what's going on. They'll begin to kind of unpack the desires of their heart, quite frankly. And usually, Kleenex has to be pushed across the table. And I have yet, I have never once 
heard somebody sniffling with Kleenex and saying, you know what's keeping me up at night? Do you know what I have? You know, this angst in my soul. Do you know what I want more than anything, Pastor Chris? A new car. A nicer wardrobe. A bigger house. Better vacations. What do they say? They say, I bet what you would say. I want God to restore my marriage. I want God to heal my body. I want God to bring me back in a relationship with my child. I want God to reconcile this. I, I want God to help give light to this darkness that I feel like I'm in. In fact, I would give anything if God would do that. If I could buy that, I would buy that. That would go on my list. See, Christmas is all about giving you, can I say it this way? What you really, really want. What you really want. Now, let me make sure you understand what I'm not saying. Uh, this is not a sermon where I'm going to say, see, we become too consumeristic and, and there's too many presents and so we've lost the meaning of Christmas and so you shouldn't do that. You should just sort of hold hands and, and like the Who's down in Whoville sing Kumbaya even though you have no presents, they've all been stolen. That's not what I want to talk to you about, okay? Because here's what I would say. This is not, Christmas is not a time for mourning and sackcloth and ashes, Christmas is so glorious and amazing that it's a time for joyous, like, like massive celebration. Like you should have fudge and seize candy and you, you, should, you should have roast beast, right? And you should have lots of gifts under the Christmas tree. I hope that's true for you. I hope all those things are great. I hope there's this real revelry because what are you celebrating? You're celebrating the fact that on Christmas we celebrate the fact that Christ backed up the dump truck of his grace and just lavished us. I'm just going to pour myself out on you and my son. And so in some small way we're representing that. But here's what I would say. None of those things are what you really want. None of those things get down to the core of like saying, man, if I could have anything, it'd be a new sweater. Right? So I had you turn to Isaiah chapter 8, verse 19, and I want to just show you what I mean. This is God saying, I will send to you what you really, really want. So let's start reading. And let me just say this. Look at me just for a second. Scripture's hard, okay? Can I, let, let me just admit that for you. Scripture is hard sometimes to understand. And it's okay if you read this and you scratch your head and go, what's going on? That's one of the reasons God gave you preachers. I'm not saying I'm infallible and I've got all the answers, but I want to try to help us sort of make our way through because there's some confusing things in this passage. And there's poetry and this is prophecy and that kind of makes things a, a little bit difficult. So let's start reading in verse 19. 
And Isaiah says this, and when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? So stop there. Let me give you a little context. So he's writing to people who have rebelled against God. He's writing to people who have turned their backs on God. And he's saying what they're doing now is they're finding themselves in trouble. So what they do is they inquire of everybody. They inquire of these godless folk. So, so, you know, you, if necromancer is, you know, too, too uh, Lord of the Rings-ish to you or whatever, the Hobbit, if that sounds too weird or mediums, the idea there is they're looking everywhere but God. They said, so shouldn't they rather inquire of God? Shouldn't they go to the one who has the answers? These people along the horizontal plane do not have the answer to your problem. And they should be inquiring of the Lord. Okay, so keep going. And he says... To the teaching of the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. Watch all the, watch all the references to light in this, right? The, the, the sun is not coming up in their life. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they're hungry, they'll be enraged and will be, speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress, darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they'll be thrust into thick darkness. Okay, now here, here's what's happening. So just let's look up again. They're, they're, they're trying to find the answer, but they're in darkness. And what do they do? To find the answer to their darkness, they look horizontally. They look to the things of the earth. They don't look to God. They look to the things of the earth. And what happens? He says every time they do that, the darkness just gets thicker. It just gets worse. It doesn't get better. They're not finding their way out of this problem. It gets worse and worse, thicker and thicker darkness. So, so this is our human predicament. But now look, he says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Look at this. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now remember that little phrase. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee, of the nations. The people who dwelled in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Now listen, God defines reality. I cannot say this strongly enough. I hope you will never forget this. God defines reality. You and I do not define reality. Humankind doesn't define reality. Here's what I mean. God says to people, apart from him, you live in darkness. Whether or not you see a light on. Whether or not you feel like you're walking in the light. You live in darkness. And you need a foreign light. You need something to shine on you. And this is exactly what he's saying is happening. But what do we do? Yes, I know I need light. Everybody knows they need light. Everybody knows in this room, everyone knows they're living in darkness. Like you, you, you go, right? You just go, go to a bookstore and there's a whole section on self-help and that's just screaming to you. We know something is wrong with our world. 
I know there's something. And so you'll go, and what do we do? We look along the horizontal line and say, somebody you know, along this is going to rescue me out of this. The scholars of our day, the philosophers of our day, they have the answers. And Isaiah is saying, no, they don't. That'll just plunge you deeper and deeper and deeper into darkness. And here's what those philosophers will say. Yep, it's dark. But, but 90% of them will say something like this. It's dark, but if we can... If we can just get our act together, if we can just sort of make Christmas every day, then there can be peace and joy and unity in our world, right? They say this is, this is really the true meaning of Christmas is that we can all come together and, and have peace. And apparently that's not possible. And you only have to go back to Good Friday to find out that's true where people get trampled at Walmart and pepper sprayed over a doll, right? All this peace on earth, goodwill to men that's supposed to be happening, even at this time of the season, is not happening. And so they, they hold out in front of you. There's a light from within. If we can navel gaze and turn in and find the light that each of us have and we can put those lights together, then somehow we'll light up the world and things will change. There's this utopia that's being held out for us and it never, ever, ever seems to get here. And there's others that go, no, no, our problem is not, you know, yes, there's darkness, but, but the problem is actually way worse than that. In fact, yeah, there's darkness and it's only going to get darker and it's only doom and gloom. And ours is not a utopian future. Ours is a dystopian future where, where Hunger Games and Mad Max are going to come to pass, right? Where these awful things, we're going to live in this reality that's just darker and darker and darker. But Christmas says, the gospel says, it really is as dark as it seems. And there is far more hope than you could possibly imagine. There is a light that shines. You see how he said that? He says the light has shone on them. It doesn't, doesn't come up within them. It shines upon them. And the New Testament authors are at pains to make sure you understand what, who this light is. So, so look, at, look, at, um, look at Matthew chapter, chapter 3, chapter 4, I'm sorry, verse, uh, verse 13. Now remember I told you, remember that little, that little phrase, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. There it is. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them, a light has dawned, and then Christ starts to preach. What are they saying? Here's the light. Matthew is saying what Isaiah prophesied about in chapter 9 comes true in Jesus Christ. This is who you're looking for. This is what we're hoping for. The light shines. Now, what happens? What happens when this light comes into the world? Well, let's keep reading. Go back to Isaiah 9 now and look what, look what the, 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 this, this poetry begins to tell us. And again, this is poetry, so remember this. We're, we're unpacking all these terms underneath that. It says, you have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. He says, when the light dawns, this light that has now shown on 
upon us, it will bring joy. And it'll be the kind of joy, use this illustration, of when there is an abundant harvest and people are like, oh my goodness, we are now blessed and now we can divide the spoil and there's singing and dancing and celebrations. That's joy. He's saying this is the joy that is coming with this light. For the yoke of his burden, verse 4 and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. You've broken as on the day of Midian. Now I use another illustration. He's saying it'll be like when there's an oppressor over you and uh, you're, you're a slave owner and, and you are taken out and you are set free and now you don't have to obey that master anymore. Now he's saying imagine the, the, the feeling of joy that that would bring you. He's saying this is, this is this light come into the world. This is Isaiah's way of talking about the gospel, the good news. It's really extraordinarily good news. But now look what he says in verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now what's that? Remember what he's saying. A light has come. And let me show you what you're going to see as a result of that. And now he says this light... In this light, burn up the warrior's boots, get rid of, melt down the sword, because this, this light that's coming is, is not going to need your help. And he's not going to conquer in the way you think he should conquer. He's going to do it in a most astonishing way. This light that has come. This is, this is the idea. He's gonna, he doesn't need the boots of a warrior. He doesn't need anybody's help. He will accomplish it all on his own. Now, who is he? Who is this light? And that's why we wanted to take you to Isaiah 9.6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. Now stop right there. Look at your Bible and look at the first word in verse 6. For. For. You know what he's telling you? Everything I've told you before. The, the way it's going to happen, the, the, the reason it's going to happen is this right here. This is this incredible, astonishing fact. You don't want to know if you're asking the question, okay, I see lights coming and this is going to happen. There's going to be joy and there's going to be this kind of joy and there's going to be, they're not going to need my help. Who is this one they're talking about? A child. A son. What in the world? And the government will be upon his shoulder. I love this. Christian, hear me. Whether you're really hopeful or feeling hopeless because of what's happened in politics, this is not the burden of government like he's weighed down. This is the authority of government like he's saying he's the one that's ultimately in charge. Donald Trump will not serve one day in office. Obama never served one day in office. Clinton, Bush, we go on and on. There's not a world ruler that has ever ruled out from under the sovereign authority, the shoulders of Christ. So, Selah, rest. God's got this. And then it's like Isaiah says, let me tell you about this child. And he's so amazing that I need to just... I almost have to be superfluous. I, I, have to, I have to sort of like dump out all of these terms so that you can, we can even just begin to get our arms around who this child is. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. So Stephen talked to us about this last week. 
Christ is, is, is the, the counselor. He's the one that's pointing to Christ. All the wisdom that we find in the Old Testament of who is that wise? Who is was wise as the, pro, the Proverbs? It's Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus is the one that has all the stores of wisdom inside of him. He's the smartest man, the wisest man who ever walked the earth. If you ever could walk into Jesus' office and say to him, here's my need, and pour out your heart before him as the Bible tells us to do. He would never like me or Stephen or any of the other pastors look and be confounded by your need. He would say, I have everything you need. I have perfect advice for you. I am a wonderful counselor. But then he says, he's also a mighty God. He is a mighty God. Now here again, Remember what I said. It's so important for you to remember this. God defines reality. Here's what I mean by that. When he tells us the names of Jesus, he's not just saying, oh, isn't that great for him? He's a, he's a wonderful counselor. He's a mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You know what he's telling you? He's, he's telling you that, yes, that's who he is because that's what you need. You're dumb. You need a wonderful counselor. You're weak. You need a mighty God. You're orphaned. You need an everlasting father. Your life is, is full of friction. You need the Prince of Peace. He's just saying this is reality. I'm telling you what's true. So now... Now, what does this mean? So let's, let's kind of just take that term, mighty God, and look at it. And I'll look at it in reverse order. God, and then we'll talk about mighty. And the first thing, of course, is just he's saying this, Jesus is God. Okay, pretty plain. In fact, maybe the most explicit reference to the divinity of the Messiah that, that we hear in the Old Testament, that he's just saying, this child, this son is God, very God. He is actually God in human flesh, which is why one page back in Isaiah chapter 7, he says, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall, and shall call his name Emmanuel. You go forward to Matthew chapter 1 and you'll hear Matthew say, the very same thing. He'll conceive and bear a son and then add that little, that little translation, which means God with us. Jesus is God. Jesus is 100% God. He's 100% man. He's fully God, fully man. Now, here's the deal. I think, I think most people in this room probably believe that. You may not. That's okay. And I'm Honestly, really glad you're here, but, but I'm, I'm actually just as concerned about all the people who say Jesus is God, but you say it like Washington was our first president. You say it like Caesar crossed the Rubicon. What does it matter? Does that make any difference in your life that Washington was first president? No. So you can mark, is Jesus God, true or false? True. Does it make any, any difference? Not really. See, so I want to talk about this. What, what difference does that make? Like, like what, 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 what should we see? If this is really true, if Jesus is God, what does it do to me? What does it do for me if I really believe? Like, like John says in John 3, 16, if I believe into him, 
Not just I give some mental assent to this. Like I, I believe unto him I'll have eternal life. What does it mean to say Jesus is God? Well, let me give you just a couple of things to think about. Number one, if I really believe that Jesus is God, then it's going to create a, a very real personal crisis, like a massive personal crisis. Because you can't yawn and glibly say Jesus is God. There's something much, much bigger going on here. here here's what happens. This is a fork in the road. Okay? The, the, a crisis is simply, I get to this place, which way do I go? And believing that Jesus is God is that fork in the road. Now, now, over the years, we've talked about, we've kind of said, you know what a Christian is, and we've kind of defined what a Christian is. Let me, let me do one more for you. These are not competing definitions. I'm just trying to help us, you know, it's like being a diamond. We turn it, we look at it from different angles. You know fundamentally what a Christian is? Who a Christian is? It's somebody who would say, I didn't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and now I do believe that Jesus is the Son of God, is God. Like, I didn't, now I do. And that, that crossover means everything. See, being a Christian is not firstly, hear me, hear my emphasis, it is not firstly about, about dealing with a particular sin. It is firstly about who is Jesus. You've got to settle that first, right? We don't go to the sin first. We don't deal with that. The fork in the road is who is Jesus, I've got I've to not so much turn from sin as I first got to believe. I've got to turn radically from unbelief to belief. So let me give you an example. Um, some of you, I mentioned Rosario Butterfield a few, uh, few weeks ago in a sermon. And if you forgot or you weren't here, she, she was a, a lesbian activist. She was a tenured professor at a major university in queer studies she began, she was, a, she was very active, not just in the lifestyle, but certainly in, in, in a, as a proponent. And she said that um, she started to study the Bible, started to look into Scripture. And at the same time, she befriended a pastor and his wife, just very kind, very hospitable, invite her into their home, serve her meals, just, just that kind of thing. And she said, I began, she said, the, the, here's what she said, the more I read the Bible, the bigger it got. And then she said this. She said, at a certain point, I came to the absolute clarity that Jesus is who he says he is. And so I tell people that I was not at that point in any way converted out of homosexuality. I was simply converted out of unbelief. And then the Lord started to work on other issues related to biblical sexuality. And then she goes on to talk about that. You see this? It was just this crisis. I didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. Now I do. Now everything for me changes. See, the crisis is not in order to become a Christian, I must get rid of A, B, and C sins. The crisis is in order to become a Christian, I must answer the question, who is Jesus? That's it. Then everything else starts to fall into place, right? See, see, this is what happened in the Gospels. Jesus always provokes a response. And I mean 
read, read them sometime. Read, read the book of Matthew. Read Luke and watch how people react to Jesus. They, they have extreme reactions. Like they, they, will, they will, there will be some people that, that, that don't like him so much they hate him and they want to kill him. There's others that say, um, it's not so much I want to kill him. There's others that, that are the extreme opposite who say, I love you so much, I fall down and worship you like God. Now that's weird. Nobody ever looks at Jesus and just goes, meh. Yeah, he's all right. It's wild reactions. Like I've been in ministry for 15 years. I, I know I have people who don't like me. I know some who like me. I'm pretty sure none of these people want to kill me. I'm certain none of these people worship me. Lots of people go, meh. <laughs> right? Jesus. Why? Why? Because he said, I'm God. If you've seen the Father, you've seen me. I and the Father are one. I walk on water. I still storms. I do all these things. Who, who can forgive sins but God alone? Answer, only God. He does things at points where the Pharisees, the religious rulers, want to pick up stones and kill him because they know he's claiming to be God. See, that's the crisis. If Jesus is who he said he is, well, then you've got to reconcile with everything. Like, like if he becomes who he says he is, then like Rosario Butterfield, he becomes the center of your entire universe. You orbit around him, and your orbit has nothing to do with how you feel or what you think is reality. It's what he says, this is reality. This is true. This is not true. This is what you look at. This is what, this is, I'm defining it for you. If he's God, if he's not, then all bets are off. I mean, if he's not, then, then reject him. He, he should have been killed. He was crazy. He was preaching awful things. Listen to Tim Keller. Tim Keller says, the modern world is filled with people who say they believe in Jesus. They say they understand who he is, but it hasn't revolutionized their lives. There's been no crisis or lasting change. The only way to explain this is that contrary to what they claim, they haven't really grasped the meaning that He is God with us. Have you? See, I'm not asking you, can you just say Jesus is God? I'm saying, is that such a functional center to your life that it changes everything? That's the first thing. It will, it will provoke a personal crisis. But the second thing it'll do is it'll give you just the greatest possible hope in the world. Because if, if Jesus is God and he said what's true, then that means there's life after death. That means this world is not all there is. That means there's hope for this evil, dark, awful world, which means there's also hope for this evil, dark, awful heart that I have. Right? This is, this is what we... That there, that there is hope. It means that God knew that I couldn't work my way up to him, so he came down to me. Now, listen to me. That is the difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world. Every religion in the world says, if you can just try harder, if you can just be good enough, if you can just work, you will work your way up to God, hopefully, but no guarantee. Christianity says God came down to you. God came in human flesh. 
in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? And, he, and, the, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld Him. I was listening to a man this week give a testimony actually at an Acts 29 church. And he, uh, he was Muslim. And he said, when I was Muslim, I, I knew I had to basically work my way up to God. And he said, I knew my whole life. I lived under this cloud of when I die, Allah on that day will decide whether the good outweighed the bad. Allah will send me either to paradise or to hell. And this was my reality, and I lived in perpetual fear and insecurity of what was going to happen to me. And he said, then someone shared the gospel. And they took me to John chapter 1. And John says, to those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be children of God. And he said, I knew. I don't have to wonder anymore. I'm a child. He's my father. So what I mean? He comes to us. This mighty God comes to us. Jesus is God. But that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is Jesus is mighty. He's just mighty, right? So now, 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 now what, what's, what's Isaiah doing there? He's telling us, look, you don't just lack light. Here's the reality. You're in darkness. You lack power. You are powerless, right? You need someone who is mighty. That's your reality, Chris. That's your reality apart from this light coming into the world, apart from this mighty God, apart from this wonderful counselor. This is who you are. So Paul, this is what the writers of the New Testament pick up on it in Ephesians chapter 2. Here's how Paul puts it. This is our predicament. And you were dead in the trespasses of your sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is reality apart from Christ. Now, did you hear what Paul said right there at the beginning? You were dead, lifeless, no impulse, no pulse, no ability to respond. So the picture is not, here's what Christ did. The picture is not, you're you're sinking slowly in a river and you're drowning and you're, you're splashing to try to keep your head above water and God in His great mercy threw you a life raft and you grabbed on and He saved you. Well, praise God. That is not the picture. It's much more glorious than that. You were dead. You were beneath the river, lying lifeless, your body waterlogged, frozen over the top of you, Jesus Christ drilled through the ice. He reached down. He brought you up. He resuscitated you. He put life into your lungs. He did what you cannot do. Now, who can do that? Only a mighty God. This is Jesus. This is what he's saying he is for us. 
He is, he is mighty to save us. We were spiritually dead. So God with us comes to rescue us. God with us comes to put things right. He comes to give us life. He comes to set us free. See, if God is good, but he's not great, he's not mighty, then what can we say about him? He's a benevolent sky fairy. He may feel, I feel something for you, Chris, but I'm not great. I'm not mighty. I can't do anything for you. If God is great and he's not good, then he probably won't do anything for you. You, you, Chris, you, you, you killed yourself. You're, the reason you're drowned at the bottom of there is your own sin. You did this to yourself. I'm not raising you back up. I don't have to do that for you. I'm not good. I don't have that good impulse. I don't want to do that. But if he's good and he's great, well, then we have all the hope in the world, don't we? Because now he looks at me dead in my trespasses and sins and says, I'm going to make you alive. I'm going to do it, Chris. I'm going to come after you. And I'm great enough, I'm mighty enough to do it. This is the hope. So you see, man, how do I get in on this? Like, how do I get out of this darkness into the light? How do I, how do I get out of death into life? How do I, how do I find shelter? How, do I, how does Jesus, how does this light become light in my world? How does, he, how does he go from being a mighty God to my mighty God? My wonderful counselor, my everlasting father, my prince of peace. Isaiah tells us. Did you see the beginning of verse 6? To us, a child is born. To us, a son is what? Given. Given. Right? He will, he will give this to you. He is powerful enough to give this to you. In fact, let me show you one other thing. Look, look, look back at Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 4. What, what, what does he do that's so mighty? He says, For the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Now, what is going on there? Like, what is he talking about? What's Midian? What is, uh, what is Oz on the day of Midian? Here's what he's referring to. He's taking you all the way back in, in redemptive history to a book in your Old Testament called Judges. And Judges is a very dark book. And specifically Judges 6 and 7. If you get there, you'll see that, that, that Israel sort of has this cycle. And they are just, they are just typical of the people of God. That is that we, everything starts going good for us. We forget God. We move away from him. We start thinking we can live the way we want to. Doesn't matter what I believe. Doesn't matter what I think. Doesn't matter the way I behave. And we begin to fall deeper and deeper into sin. And what happens when, when Israel does that, they start serving the foreign gods, serving the foreign idols. So God sends these nations to oppress them. Sin always results in oppression. Always. And what happens? They finally get to a place where they cry out. And in the book of Judges, you know what God does? He sends, can I say it this way? A Savior. Always. These are very imperfect saviors. These are men. These are, these are, these are flawed, incredibly flawed men and women that he sends as their saviors. But he sends them, and one of those in Judges 6 and 7 is, is a guy named Gideon. What happens in Gideon? Gideon um, is told, God comes to him and says, Hail, mighty warrior, 
You know, here's what you're going to do. I need you, Gideon. I'm going to appoint you, and you're going to go on my behalf as sort of my intermediary, and you're going to be the one who leads an army to destroy the, 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 the Midianites. Now, the Midianites is a huge, like the Bible says their, their army that they amassed was as the number of the sand on the sea, number of the stars in the sky. This is, this is Midian. So if you're a commander, you're Gideon, and God says you're going to go destroy them, what do you do? You do what any good commander would do. You go, let's, let's muster an army, right? So he goes out, and he gets 32,000 men to join this army. Starts heading there, and God says, hey, wait, Gideon, stop. Um, that army is too large. Weird, right? That's strange. Why would you say it's too large? I'm up against a billion or whatever it is, and there's 32,000 of us. And God says, no, still too large. He says, here's the deal. Go tell them, anybody who wants to go home, anybody who's newly married, anybody who starts giving a list, you can turn around and go home. 10,000 men leave. And God says, good, still not small enough. What? So he says, go down to the river. There's going to be some men They'll drink and they'll put their, they'll bend over and they'll sip and others will, others will stand and they'll put their hand like this. Now, maybe you've heard this story before and somebody's told you, weren't these guys super clever? Like, pick those guys because they're attentive. Pick those guys because that's who you want to be like, Christian. You want to be like the Christian that, that, you know, sips water from his hand. Don't be like those that look down. I mean, be alert, be aware. That's the moral of the story. It's not at all the moral of the story. He said, I want to whittle it down from 22,000 to 300. 300 men. And you're going to go up against this vast army. Now, what are you thinking if you're Gideon? This is not possible. Exactly. So he says, now Gideon, go down with your friend there. Go down to the camp and listen. You can just picture it's nighttime, moon's out. Sort of these, this encampment of the Midianites around the fire. They sneak up behind the tent. They listen in. There's two guys talking. I had this dream. And this dream, he starts to describe the dream. And the other goes, oh, that must mean that God is with Gideon and Israel. And he's going to destroy us. And Gideon's like, yes. Right? He runs back and goes, guys, you're not going to believe this. God has gone before us. So here's what let's do. Here's the grand battle plan. Everybody Grab a clay pot and then grab a torch. What? Just do what I say, right? They grab a pot. They grab a torch. Now go and surround the Midianites. Put your torch inside the pot. And when I give the word, break the pot. Because God's given us. And they go. And they do it and they sneak up and they get around and, and they raise their torches and the people, the, the men of Midian start murdering one another. They freak out. They're routed. They're gone. What is God trying to tell us? What is Isaiah trying to tell us? God wins the battle. This weak, foolish battle plan is stronger than the horses and army of a multitude. Your mighty God will come in weakness, in the frailty of a baby. And nobody will believe this can work. 
And he will come and he will be the mighty God who will hang on a cross. And everybody will think, that's so foolish. That's so crazy. And that's my battle plan. And I will vanquish sin, Satan, hell, death. And I will bring you everything you ever wanted. So how do you get in on it? It's a gift. But let me say this about gifts. Some gifts are hard to receive. Right? They just are. Because they require you to swallow your pride. Like, just imagine this. You wake up. I'll pick on the guys this morning. Let's imagine you wake up, and you go to the Christmas tree, and there's a couple of gifts under there, and you pick it up, and there's one from your wife, and you rip it open, and it's a book that says, How to Lose 100 Pounds. You're like, hey, babe. Thank you, you, right? But there's another gift, so there's still hope, and you get that one, it's from your kids, and you rip it open, and it says, overcoming selfishness. So now what, right? Now, what happens if you take those gifts and receive them and say thank you? You're saying, I'm fat and selfish. And now I have to admit that. Right? You will never, ever swallow more pride than when you come to Jesus. Because he will come to you and say, you are in darkness and only I have the light. You're living a lie. I have the truth. You, you are foolish. I'm a wonderful counselor. You are powerless. I'm a mighty God. And that's the only way in humbly to receive the gift of God. But when you do that, you get everything you ever wanted. I mean really wanted. Wonderful, mighty Jesus. I could go on and on about how mighty he is, but let me leave you with this from the book of Jude. It's one chapter in your Bible, second to last book in your Bible. Jude ends this way, now to him who is able, powerful, strong enough to keep you, Christian, from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time, now and forever. And everybody said, amen. Let's pray. So, Father, thank you. Jesus, thank you that you are not just good, you're great. You're not just great, you're good. You are the mighty God. And we worship you for that. Lord, some of us need to know. We need to hear that word. We're facing situations in our lives where we wonder, are you mighty enough, God? There are people in our lives who have walked away from you, perhaps. There are husbands, there are wives, there are family members that our hearts grieve over. God, you are a mighty God and you're mighty to save and you're mighty to persevere. So I pray, God, settle this truth in our hearts, but most of all, settle in our hearts that Jesus is God. And that our whole lives would center and orbit around you. I pray, Lord, for those who are here today that, that has not been their confession or maybe it's been merely a confession but doesn't represent the status of their heart. And I pray that today that would not because I've been eloquent or, 
articulate or anything like that, God, but because the Spirit of God is at work in this room to draw people to Himself. And Lord, you'd open blind eyes. You'd unstop deaf ears. You'd resurrect dead people. By the power of our mighty, mighty Savior, Jesus Christ. We love you. We thank you. We ask this in Jesus' name.